Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. I wanted to say, if you actually are new here tonight, uh, I actually know what it is to sit in your chair. And I'm hugely pumped that you're willing to come and explore and open up and to ask serious questions of the Christian faith. And I want you to know that those questions are welcome. Truth invites questioning. And Jesus, across the story of the Gospels, is way more comfortable with doubts than many modern-day Christians have sadly become. And so we want you to have the opportunity to ask away at the Christian story and to please come with all of your hard questions and let's um, wrestle with that uh, outside after the service. Um, It's also why I'm really passionate about being able to help connect our questions to the Christian story. Because the Bible itself is a fascinating compendium of God speaking through various literary genres and times and people and places to be able to reveal one unified story that points us to Jesus. And this Christian story, it speaks to life's deepest questions in amazing and life-giving ways. And so we want to do that today, connecting it with the question of guilt in this series. Number three, this sermon's called Guilt, God, and the Gospel. If you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to do that helps you remember things and wrestle with things after the time has come and gone. But let me start with a primer on guilt. Because everyone here is familiar with guilt, but it can be a reasonably hard thing to describe. Now, if you were to ask someone on the street with a camera in their face, they might tell you that guilt is about feeling bad when you do stuff wrong. If you were to ask a moral philosopher... They would say that guilt is the moral status of being in the wrong. Would you ask a psychologist, they would say that guilt is a social motivator in the negative category of emotions. And having done quite a bit of reading up on the place of guilt in the psychological literature, let me share some of the interesting insights that psychologists come from within their field. Here's a positive reflection on guilt. They say that guilt protects our relationships. Even though you may feel bad, guilt is actually a pro-social emotion. It's got a purpose, a design behind it. It's meant to be like a signal that goes off in our brain, a constant warning when we're doing things that are negatively affecting our place in the web of relationships that we're in. A negative reflection, guilt weaponizes our brain. Major studies reveal that heaping guilt on others it actually activates the reward center of your brain. Making other people feel guilty can make you feel better. That's a scary thought. Another negative observation, guilt commandeers our energy. Studies reveal that when guilt competes with positive aspects for our attention, things like creativity or productivity, then almost always guilt wins out. Psychologists will say that guilty consciences can be crippling to the rest of your life. It commandeers our energy. One that I found particularly fascinating, a final negative reflection, guilt becomes our burden. I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, weighed down by guilt. Well, it turns out this phrase is more than a metaphor. It is quite uh, literally true. There are two researchers, one from Princeton, one from the University of Waterloo, who got together to do a controlled study where they discovered that there is a link between recalling, reminding yourself of past misdeeds, things you've done wrong, and then the sensation of feeling heavier. 
that guilt elicits a physiological response of feeling burdened or weighed down. I wonder if coming in here tonight, you have this sense of a burden that you've been carrying on your conscience for years. Something that's been weighing you down. And when it comes to making sense of guilt from a scientific perspective, well, then people step in to try and offer a whole series of solutions. There is a secular answer to guilt. We can just explain it away. So much of the project of evolutionary psychology, of looking at our current experience or social features in light of our past evolutionary development, they search for what they call just-so stories, ways of being able to explain why we feel and think and act the way that we do. And when it comes to our moral feelings then, the argument goes that morality developed as we became social creatures and where we depended upon our cooperation for survival. Now, if there is no room for God in your story, if all you have is a purely secular register, then morality almost inevitably will become what the philosophers call relative. Moral relativism. Where good and evil, right and wrong, these are not objective categories, but they change depending upon who you are, what tribe you belong to, what culture you belong to, when you are, and ultimately where you are. And because good and evil are just human conventions, then our moral feelings, things like guilt, are nothing more than a psychological trick that our brains play on us to be able to foist certain kind of behaviors into our midst. Of course, the thing is, as soon as you become aware of the fact that guilt is just an evolutionary illusion, well, all of a sudden the emperor has no clothes on. Your guilt holds no power over you. It doesn't point to anything in reality. So why worry about it? Guilt is just a false metric. Now, over early history in psychology, entire approaches to clinical psychology leaned this way of trying to convince you that you shouldn't feel guilty. It's not helpful in any way. But the more psychologists have learned about how powerful guilt can be, the approaches have shifted. The only problem is... The self-help literature, the popular psychosocial and spiritual gurus, the kind of stuff you see plastered all over the memes on social media, these haven't really caught up. And so you'll have people tattooing on themselves, no regrets or regrets. But this idea of pushing down our guilt, pretending that it doesn't mean anything, seems to be an incredibly dangerous social path. What happens when we lean into the impulse to simply ignore these signals? What happens when we, over time, turn down our conscience? Now, I love watching Netflix documentaries, particularly ones about sort of true crime and seeing the tapes of interviews with psychopaths and sociopaths who have committed woeful atrocities and multiple serial murders. And what's so chilling is seeing the ways in which they often reflect upon their past exploits. No remorse, no empathy, no guilt. That is the end result of pushing down any point of saying that guilt serves a meaningful purpose. I see it play out on small scale with my boys, right? I've got three boys, five, three, and one. It is basically survival of the fittest in my house. They're fighting constantly. But they don't necessarily have inbuilt into them deep empathy one for another, particularly when it comes to sharing toys or sharing chocolate, right? We have to try and teach them to share. Or when one of the boys hits the other or hurts them, 
Buddy, say sorry to your brother. Nah. Don't care. Now think if you taught them to lean into that lack of empathy, that lack of guilt. What kind of relationships, what kind of society we would ultimately live in. It seems to me to numb our moral feelings, to have our consciences seared, that paints a scary picture of our future. And the problem isn't just the results that this would lead towards. I think what's really problematic with this diagnosis is it assumes that our moral feelings are nothing more than an evolutionary illusion. It assumes that there is no God. But I happen to think that God does exist. And in fact, one of the reasons why I think God exists is because of our deep moral intuitions, our belief in good and evil. And if I could take a little five-minute sidebar for a second, given that I stray into the realm of apologetics, I want to talk with you for a minute about one of the most powerful arguments for God's existence. It's called the moral argument. Now, the moral argument has been made by various thinkers throughout the centuries. It basically steps from the idea that we have this innate belief that some things really are good and some things really are evil. Take our global conversation right now about racial justice, particularly as it's been sparked by the dark history of the USA, indeed much of the Western world. Now, if we grew up in a world that is godless, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good built into the system, it's actually really difficult to be able to explain why slavery, why Racial injustice, why racism is universally wrong. I was making this point just recently with a large cohort of Year 12 students up here on the coast. The school will remain unnamed for its own anonymity. Now, most of these students, even though they went to a Christian school, 97% of them polled said they did not believe in God, at least not in the Christian God, more of a general vague concept some had. And so it was almost entirely a secularized or just vaguely spiritual group. And almost entirely in unison, they believe that morality is relative. That what's right or wrong depends upon time and place and culture. And so I said to them, do you believe that colonial slavery is wrong? One voice back, absolutely wrong. Okay, what makes it wrong? Well, everyone agrees that it's wrong. Okay, fine. If we went back 200 years in, you know, the TARDIS or a time machine... And we went around and asked everyone then, the vast majority of the world didn't think that there was anything wrong with this practice. Many white people throughout the Western world thought that they were doing a favor to people that weren't as far along the evolutionary spectrum. According to the U.S. Constitution, founding documents, African Americans were only considered to be three-fifths of a person. Now, if everyone back then thought it was right, does that mean that it was right? This group was looking at me, obviously squirming. No, of course it's not right. But why not? Everyone thought it was right. You said that ultimately it's what everyone believes. It changes by time and place and culture. And so by you saying that it's wrong, aren't you just imposing kind of a colonial style, your moral beliefs back into another place? Aren't you doing the very thing that you're charging them of doing? And it was at this point they began to realize, actually what I think about slavery It doesn't matter what other people believe. They were wrong. That some things, irrespective of what everyone else believes, even if everyone thinks it's right, it's still wrong. 
They came to wake up to the fact that they believed in some kind of objective standard. Something that was outside of themselves. Something to which everyone is ultimately accountable. And this is the very basis for the moral argument for God's existence. One of my mentors, Ravi Zacharias, he used to put it in more crude or street-level terms when he said, when we think that there is such a thing as evil, there has to be such a thing as good, a way to distinguish between good and evil. But then we are positing a moral law. But if we're positing a moral law, we have to posit a moral law giver, the only candidate for which is God. And so if you believe in good and evil, that these are real things, It actually requires you to believe in something beyond yourselves. Put this way by the philosopher William Lane Craig. He puts it more in a hard philosophical syllogistic frame. And he says, premise one, if God does not exist, then these objective moral values, belief in good and evil and duties, right and wrong, do not exist. But through our experience, objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Now, don't get me wrong, the moral argument is not saying that people who don't believe in good can't be good people. It's simply saying that they can't ground their belief in goodness and their belief in evil without reference to God. For on atheism, unless you propose a sort of moral Platonism, which is pretty rare in the philosophical realm, it's actually impossible for you to jump over what David Hume called the is-to-ought gap. Atheism describes the world as it is. It can never tell you how it ought to be. It can describe what people do. It cannot tell you what they should have done. It provides no ought, no basis for this. And many skeptical people, like C.S. Lewis, have been found this argument, this experience of good and evil in the world, to be a serious pebble in their shoe that's led them to take a fresh look at what the Christian story offers. And that's what I love to do, connect the Christian story to life's deepest questions. So I want to do that with this talk of guilt, because I don't think we should push guilt down. I don't think we should pretend guilt away. I think if we're going to deal with our guilt right, we need to move through it and past it and learn to treat it as it needs to be treated. And the Christian story offers some fascinating insight here. Because into the swirl of stories that make up our modern culture, where Hollywood and holy people, politicians and philosophers, everyone's spinning a tale as to who you should be and how you should think, God's word enters the fray, which always speaks. And God comes to bring life, and he comes to bring light, and he comes to extend his love. And I want to help you make sense of the guilty feelings we all experience in light of how it is that the Christian story diagnoses reality. And to do that, I want to start right at the beginning, in what the Bible calls in Genesis 1 and 2, the garden, where God, having fashioned creation for a purpose, ultimately then spins you and me into existence. Humanity created in God's image. And humans weren't an accidental byproduct of a random series of events. They were the intentional crown of God's creation. And they were made for two things— We were made for deep and meaningful relationships, to love God and love each other. And we were also made for a role. We were meant to reflect God's creative order to the rest of the planet. We were told to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth and rule over it. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the things that creepeth along the ground. 
And the picture that God had intended is just like the, how God brought order out of chaos in creation. That we were meant to go and create cultures that reflect God's goodness and love and beauty. Framing the world, making fruitful the earth. Building culture. Now, in this system, God didn't just create the universe to function according to natural laws that govern matter and energy. There is also a deeper law at work in the universe, a moral law. God wove a moral fabric into creation, one where if we go with it, it results in our freedom and our flourishing and our life. It's God's moral boundaries for us. But if we go against the grain of God's moral design, well, as anyone who works with wood knows, that results in all kinds of psychosocial splinters. There would be a terrible fallout, God warned. And rather than use the, the freedom that God gave us to love him and trust his moral boundaries, trust God's definition of good and evil, instead humanity used that same freedom to corrupt God's world. We went against God's moral design. And like what happens when you try and break the law of gravity by stepping off the side of a building and only end up being broken by the law of gravity, so too when we tried to break God's moral law, we were broken by it. No longer do we relate to God the way that we were intended to, or to each other, or to the environment. Everything was damaged by evil. And the human conscience you see playing out in Genesis 2 and 3 in a beautiful way. It says that when humanity was created male and female, then that first human community, there was nothing separating us. There was no sense of shame that made you hide who you are. It says of Adam and Eve that they were both naked and unashamed, fully known, fully seen, and feeling safe. But as soon as Genesis 3 kicks in and they sin against God and are broken by the world, they begin to hide behind fig leaves and ferns. They felt guilt and they felt shame. And their reaction was to run away from God and from each other. And our consciences are the compass, albeit somewhat broken because of sin. It may not point directly to true north. Even still, though, it helps us get a sense of the moral landscape. Our consciences wake us up to the reality that there is a design fabric, a moral reality. In Romans 2, 14 to 15, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, indeed, when Gentiles, sidebar, that's you and me, if we're not Jewish. The Bible divides the world into two kinds of people, Jews and non-Jews. Jews and Gentiles, we are the Gentiles. Both Gentile men as well as Gentile people. That was a bad joke, and I'm going to keep moving. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of this law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day where God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now this passage is saying a lot. But it's saying that our consciences are a window into a moral reality. That we know God's moral law It's written on our hearts and that guilt is a warning signal that not all is right between creator and creation. And no matter how hard we try to push it down, all of us are haunted by this sense of guilt. And whatever we've done in secret, one day it will be known. It won't stay hidden forever. 
Now, at this point, it's really important to say, yes, there is such a thing as false guilt, where we feel guilty for something outside of our knowledge or control, feel guilty for doing something that had unforeseen or unintended consequences, where perhaps like mums today, you feel weighed down by the ridiculous expectations that society puts upon you and you never feel like you can live up to it. Yes, there is such a thing as false guilt. And yes, there is such a thing as people manipulating guilt for their own ends, whether to motivate certain behaviors in a group like obedience or whether as a mechanism for abusive relationships to control another person. Yes, there is such a thing as manipulation of guilt. I don't want to push either of those two things aside, but I want to focus tonight on true guilt. Because as soon as we look past these parasites on guilt, there is still a distinct sense that none of us are who we know we're meant to be. And like that diagnosis in Genesis, all of us have fallen away from the way of love that we were made for. And even if people try and suppress this knowledge, even if they try and numb their conscience in our honest moments by ourselves, God's revelation leaks through. All of us know to some degree we're guilty. And I get that this is heavy stuff. We need to draw a light on reality so we know how to healthily move through it. Because if you're still new to church and figuring out this Christianity thing, this is why Christianity is good news. Because it comes to do something, not only about the brokenness of our world, not only helping us who we're meant to be, but it comes to do something about our guilt. And part of what God does in coming close to you for the first time is actually heighten your sense of wrongdoing. The Holy Spirit, God's personal presence, is designed to convict us when it comes to sin. Convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. So if you're here tonight and you have never done anything wrong, guess what? Christianity is not for you. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he said, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I'm aware, to say to people who do not know that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind that law, the moral argument for God's existence, and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. Jesus said he came for the sick. It's only when you're sick that you start listening to the doctor. So our consciences, although they're not perfect, they do really matter. They are like an alarm clock that wakes us up to reality. It points us towards God's existence. It points us towards God's moral design. It points us towards our need for forgiveness. And this is where the good news of Christianity comes in. Because Jesus comes to offer something that no other religious luminary or secular self-help guru can offer you. Grace. God's undeserved, unmerited love and favor. Jesus comes to extend mercy and forgiveness of sins and peace with God and a cleansing of our conscience. He comes to deal with both the fact and the feeling of guilt. And I just want to pause these out just a little bit for you. First, the gospel and the fact of guilt. Now, if you're new to the church and you don't know what this word gospel means, it is like the heart of the Christian story. It is simply a word that means good news. And there is this beautiful little creed in one of the New Testament letters, 1 Corinthians 15, that summarizes the gospel. It was the earliest creed, the statement of beliefs 
that the first followers of Jesus shared together. And it goes like this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared. And it goes on to list a litany of eyewitnesses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now, what does this gospel mean? Well, the good news comes down to justice. I don't know if there's ever been a generation as motivated by the desire for justice. But how does justice come about? Justice comes about through right judgment. You see, the end picture of the Bible is one of Jesus returning to set everything right, where he is the judge appointed to be able to bring about justice on the earth, to wipe away evil on the horizon. And in this picture of a final judgment of Jesus on a great throne and us standing before him, the great dead and alive, everyone resurrected to stand before Jesus, it says the books are opened in Revelation chapter 20. And these books record everything that we've ever thought and said and done. The bad things that we've done and the good things that we left undone. Sins of commission and sins of omission. And were you and I to try and stand at that judgment on our own record to be accepted the floor would fall out beneath us because none of us is guiltless. None of us are innocent. And many secular people, when I'm doing Q&As in universities or schools, will say, I have a real problem with God judging people, and particularly this thing called hell. So that's really interesting. We lean so much into the idea that a loving God would never judge anyone, whereas the dilemma of the Bible is different. In the book of Romans, It's trying to wrestle with how is it that a just and good and holy judge can ultimately forgive or declare innocent people who have corrupted creation and done so much harm, not just to the world, but to the people around them. I mean, what would we think about a judge who in putting someone in the dock, having then seen all the evidence they have committed multiple rapes, multiple murders, multiple atrocities against humanity, then stands there and declares Yeah, you did that, but it doesn't matter. I'll let you off anyway. What about the victims? What about their families? How is this justice? What is he saying about those acts? It diminishes their importance. The horn dilemma that God faces is how can he be both just and the justifier of sinners? And the heart of this is the Christian story of where God becomes Human, where he as the judge comes to stand in our place, to substitute himself, to take upon himself our ultimate penalty, to say that what happened does matter, so much so that we're going to have to exact justice and see that it goes punished. But I love you too much to bear that punishment. So instead, I'm going to bear it in your place. This was a plan that wasn't an afterthought in God's mind. The Bible says that before the creation of the world, knowing that we would sin, knowing the corruption that would happen, that God set this plan in motion. And you see its whispers from Genesis 3 onwards, that one day the seed of the woman will come to crush the head of the snake. But Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. They're clothed in the skins of animals. Their shame covered over by the death of another. 
And as it moves forward in the Bible, you have these prophetic whispers like Isaiah 53 that said, One is coming, and he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that would bring us peace, and by his wounds we would be healed. And at the proper time, God sent forth his Son, born of a virgin, to suffer and die for us, to make atonement. To bring judgment ahead of time into the very middle of history. You know, when you read the gospel stories about what Jesus endured, there's a couple of small details that people often skip over that for me hit me right here. That after Jesus endured a series of dark and mysterious and hidden trials where he's been spat upon and beaten, there's a point where the Roman soldiers are toying with Jesus. And he's been scourged already. They fashion a crown of thorns and they press it into his skull. Now we might think that's just an incidental detail, but go back to Genesis chapter 3. And what does it say? That the result of the curse was now the earth would bring forth thorns and thistles. Jesus at Calvary was crowned with our curse. And it says that these soldiers put a scarlet robe over him. And one of the most powerful images describing the stain of our sin comes in Isaiah chapter 1. That our sins are like scarlet. At Calvary, Jesus was shrouded in our sin. They are these powerful windows into the reality that Jesus bore what we ought to. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He said, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when we stand at the judgment now, rather than have to stand on our own record, instead, 2,000 years ago, Jesus took that record upon himself and he faced judgment. And now we get to stand on his And Revelation 20 paints this picture that another book is opened, which is the book of life. And anyone whose name was found written in the Lamb's book of life, well, judgment passes over him. He enters into God's future city, God's future world, a place of no more suffering, sickness, crying, or death, a place of no guilt or shame. They get to have eternal life with God. Michael Card in his 1989 album on the track Jubilee, has this beautiful lyric. To be so completely guilty and given over to despair, to look into your judge's face and see a savior there. That's the experience for the person who has come to be a Christian, to believe in Jesus, to trust in the gospel, because it is not by bringing what we can do to the table that saves us. Dwight L. Moody had this great line where he said, a great many people want to bring their faith, their works, their good deeds to him for salvation. He said, instead, bring your sins and he will bear them away into the wilderness of forgetfulness and you will never see them again. Through the gospel, what God does with the fact of your guilt is that he takes it as far away from you as you can imagine. In Psalm 103, verse 12, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our sins from us. The full quote in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Though your sins are as scarlet, 
they will be white as snow. Through Jesus' death, through his blood, we have the forgiveness of sins. And if you feel like you've sinned too much and are not possibly capable of forgiveness, you are way too confident in your ability to sin. Because Jesus' sacrifice is greater than any sin you could ever commit. And his mercy is deeper than any mistake that you've ever made. Which is why John Newton, a former slave ship captain, came on his knees to believe in Jesus. The one who penned the very words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. One of his favorite lines, as he was constantly reminded of his guilt, was to say, yes, I'm a great sinner. But Christ is a great savior. Jesus has removed the fact of our guilt. But let me just speak just for a couple more minutes on the feeling of guilt. Because you may believe this stuff up here, or perhaps you're here for the first time and you're understanding why this really is good news if this is all true. It doesn't mean that necessarily takes away that guilty feeling, the heavy conscience, the burden that's upon us. John Piper says that if the devil cannot keep you from regretting your sin, then he will do his best to keep you from enjoying your forgiveness. He wants you to stay wallowing in the mud, trying to do penance until you feel like you're good enough to enter into God's presence again. That voice of condemnation that is spoken over you, C.S. Lewis called it the odious inner radio. This is something that's so present for us. So let me share from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, a contrast. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. The feeling of guilt, there are two ways that you can react to it in the kind of sorrow that you feel. Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow is driven by the fear of making a fool of yourself, whereas godly sorrow is driven by the tragic realization that you have dishonored God and hurt others. Worldly sorrow is a voice of condemnation for sin. It defines you by what you've done, whereas godly sorrow is a voice of conviction for sin that draws you to who you could be. Worldly sorrow, it almost immobilizes you so that you wallow in the consequences of your sin, whereas godly sorrow propels us to our knees to be able to receive forgiveness through repentance. Worldly sorrow, it makes us feel bad for our past sins, whereas godly sorrow makes us turn from our past sins. Worldly sorrow curves our attention in upon ourselves. We become self-occupied, whereas godly sorrow, it fixes our eyes on Jesus. Worldly sorrow acts like a final destination. You get stuck there, whereas godly sorrow is a doorway to something else. Worldly sorrow, we're told, leads to death, whereas godly sorrow leads to life. As you read through the gospel stories, there is no greater picture of the contrast of these two reactions to the feeling of guilt than between two of Jesus' closest followers, Judas and Peter. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he predicted that both of them would betray him. Judas went on to betray Jesus for a small bag of money. He led enemy soldiers to arrest Jesus, identified him with a kiss, and then he felt bad about what he did. 
the choice became bitter in his mouth. He was racked with guilt. But he was overcome by a voice of condemnation. And the tragic end to his part in the peace is that he took his own life. He could never see past his sin to the Savior. But Peter, if you read Luke 22, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. And Peter said, no way, Jesus. Yeah, sure. I got out of the boat and started sinking. My faith failed in that moment. Yeah, sure, I told you that you shouldn't go to the cross and die. And you called me Satan for it. That was a little bit of a misstep. But this time, I will not screw up. He made a bold promise to Jesus. Even if it means prison, even if it means death, I will not let you down. I don't know if you've ever made a promise like that to God. I've screwed up a bunch of times, but that's done. I'm never going to make a mistake ever again. And you make these outrageous promises. Jesus looks at Peter in that moment. And he says, Peter, you're wrong. Before tonight is out, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me threefold, not just once, three times. And Peter goes on after Jesus is arrested to follow the proceedings through these dark trials. But at every point where someone says, hey, aren't you one of those Galileans? Aren't you one of those friends of Jesus? He denies even knowing him. Even to a teenage girl, he's afraid. And we're told in Luke's account that at the very moment he denied Jesus for the third time, the rooster crows. And there was an eye shot where Jesus looks directly at Peter. And it said that Peter runs out into the darkness of the night, weeping bitterly. It was at this moment that he felt guilty for his sin, weighed down by his failure. But that's not all Jesus had said to him before. If you go back up before Jesus predicted his denial, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. Jesus was praying for him. And in that statement, he helped Peter realize that I love you before you do anything good. I love you knowing you're going to stuff up. I love you knowing the guilt that you're going to bear, that at my deepest hour of need, you're going to abandon me. I still love you no matter how much you fail. And when that clicks in, When you finally get it and you return and come back, strengthen everyone else with this same knowledge. It's not on the basis of what you do. It's on the basis of what I've done, how much I love you. You want to know a fun little nugget that I discovered in Hebrews? Do you know what Jesus is doing right now? A ton of people think Jesus rose from the dead. He hung out for 40 days. He taught the disciples. He answered their questions. He gave them the great commission. He went up to heaven. And now he's just chilling by the poolside, waiting for his return. It's not what Hebrews says. He says that we have a high priest who represents us to God. That he never slumbers nor sleeps. In fact, it says that he always lives to intercede for us. 
You know what Jesus is doing for you right now? He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. Just like he did for Peter. That your faith may not fail. That you will remember the promises of this gospel. That you are loved. Knowing everything you would ever do. Even after you become a Christian. Jesus looks at the very depths of your heart and says, I love you. I died for you. Your guilt is paid for. So now, let that feeling of sorrow draw you to repentance and lead it to life. If your guilty feeling lingers for a second longer than it needs to to be able to get you to your knees to get right with God, then that's not godly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. And you can just write that right off as totally unhelpful. Godly sorrow, God's kindness draws us to repentance and it leads to life. So if you're here tonight and you're weighed down by guilt, if your conscience sits heavy on your shoulders like the psychologists tell us, then Jesus' invitation is simple. Come unto me, all you who are heavy burdened and weary laden, and I will give you rest. He wants to give your conscience rest from the guilt, from the shame, from the weight, from the fear. Don't hide out in the darkness any longer. Step into the light. Come clean with Jesus, who you are, what you've done. And perhaps come clean with people around you who can support and love you and be that example of God's grace and forgiveness to you as they embrace you and say, you know what? That sin that you feel guilty about, that shame that you carry, Jesus nailed that to the cross 2,000 years ago. That is not who you are. And if you need to make that step tonight, whether you're not yet a Christian for the first time or you're a Christian and you've been running for too long, it's time to step into the light and come clean with Jesus. Leave your guilt behind, the fact and the feeling of it. Believe the gospel afresh. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to give you a chance to do this now. I'm going to offer a very simple prayer. And whether you're tuning in online or whether you're here today and you want to make that prayer your own, then pray that along with me in your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you see us. You know us to the depths, warts and all. And yet you still sent your son to love us all the way to the cross. By his stripes, we are healed, crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions, crowned with our curse, shrouded by our sin, taking our record, that we might know freedom, forgiveness, and the cleansing of a conscience. And Lord, we confess right now, each of us personally, the things we know that are on our conscience. Thank you that you convict us, but that you love us, to draw us to repentance, to leave this way of death behind and to step into life. And we believe afresh the gospel. We place our faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection. And we leave behind any thought of earning our own salvation. And we ask right now, Lord, that you would come in and flood us with the joy of, 
that comes from forgiveness of sin. That you would remove that heavy burden from our shoulders. And I pray that right now, by your presence, your love, your grace, people would begin to feel lighter. And it would be a turning point in their reality. To start walking in the light with you. Following your purpose. Overshadowed by your love and grace. Cheered on by your church. We thank you for this great gift in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.